Evening, everyone. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Gordon, and thank you all those who have led us in praise tonight. It kind of feels one of those evenings when there's almost been enough said and enough sung, uh, and I'm not really sure I need to say very much else, but I'll say something, see how far I go with this. Uh, let me ask you a question. What's the sound of one hand clapping? What is the sound of one hand clapping? Anyone know where that line comes from? Uh, some of you might recognize it as a, as a line from a song by Van Morrison, or should I say Sir Van Morrison, his song Enlightenment, although it, it, is, a, it is a kind of enlightenment riddle for which there's not meant to be really an answer. But let me ask you another similar type question, only this time in, a question inspired by Scripture. What is the sound of sheer silence? What is the sound of sheer silence? Does anyone know where this comes from? Let me, uh, let me give you the full quote. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, a sound of sheer silence. Does anyone know where that comes from or who it was said to? 1 Kings 19, very impressive. Very impressive. Anyone know who, who was involved in this? Elijah. The sound of sheer silence. Now there's a paradox. And I know in some translations it refers to a gentle whisper. But I, but I love this verse. In, and the, the version, by the way, is the new revised standard version. But I, but I love that. The sound of sheer silence. And amongst other things, what it highlights is that silence becomes a medium for divine revelation. Or put simply, God speaks in the silence. Now, the silence of God is something, and this is the paradox that we're going to be thinking about tonight, the, the God who speaks silently, but the silence of God, or, or what seems like the silence of God, can be tough. can be tough to understand. It can be tough to cope with, especially whenever you're looking to God or you're crying out to God in the midst of difficulties or in painful circumstances and situations, and it feels like as you cry out to God, you're, you're just met with a wall of silence. And it's uncomfortable. And it's frustrating, and there are times when it can feel that, or it can feel like God is on mute. In the Old Testament, Habakkuk, who we looked at a few weeks ago, Habakkuk taunts people who are into idolatry. And the reason that he taunts them is because their idols, their gods, can't speak. And so this is what he says. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. Then this bit. He makes idols that cannot speak. But our God can speak. Our God does speak. And yet there are times when we, we, we don't hear him. We, we can't hear him. 
And so we are left wondering. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his, in his powerful memoir, A Grief Observed. Let me read a quote from it. Meanwhile, where is God, asks Lewis. This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, says Lewis, silence. Why, he asks, is God so present a commander in our times of prosperity and so very absent in a time of trouble? And I think it's fair to say that knowing the silence of God or the perceptible silence of God, it's a common experience for many of us. And yet, the God who is silent still speaks. It's a paradox. It's a truth. And as we tease this out, I want to turn to a, a really interesting book of the Bible. It's a really interesting book of the Bible for lots of reasons. It's the book of Esther, one of only two women in the Bible to have a book named after them. It's a book that's full of sexual exploitation. It's a book full of personal vendettas. It's a book which includes the threat of anti-Semitic ethnic cleansing. Ten chapters in Esther. Here's a condensed version of it. Now, some of you, if you were here about a, just over a year ago at a family service, will have heard me tell a kind of condensed version, but this is even more condensed. But let me just tell you, because we, we don't have time to read ten chapters, but, but let me give you a condensed version of the story. There was a man called Haman. I did this at a family service, so you're going to get the family pictures, okay? The kids' pictures. There was a man called Haman who occupied a top job in the king, King Xerxes' government. And this man, Haman, was so important, it tells us that even all the other royal officials who were part of King Xerxes' government, all of them bowed down to Haman whenever he walked past the palace gates. And Haman took a major disliking for this, to this Jewish man called Mordecai, who never knelt when Haman walked past. And the Jewish people were people who were living at this stage in exile, but some of them, like Mordecai, got a job in the king's service in order to earn a living. And actually, the king quite liked this Jewish man, Mordecai. He did a good job. But Mordecai, we read, had a cousin. She was called Esther. She was very attractive. The Bible actually says, and I'm just quoting it word for word, Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Mordecai, we're told, adopted Esther as his daughter whenever her parents died when she was really young. And King Xerxes decided that he was going to replace the current queen because she had done something to really annoy him. And so a search party was sent out to find King Xerxes a new partner. And to cut a very long story short, Esther won a beauty contest. And she was chosen to become the new queen. But 
Nobody knew she was a Jew. And nobody knew that she was Mordecai's adopted daughter. Just one other piece of info about Mordecai. One day he discovered a plot to assassinate the king. There were two men who also worked for the king who had decided to kill King Xerxes, but Mordecai overheard them plotting. And so Mordecai told Esther, who was now queen, who in turn told the king. And the king had the two men who had plotted to kill him killed. Mordecai saved Xerxes' life. But if we go back to Haman, Haman, as I said earlier, hated Mordecai. So much that he got to a point where he decided, I'm going to kill him. But I'm not just going to kill him. This isn't just personal against Mordecai. I actually want to exterminate, annihilate, destroy all the Jews who are living in this kingdom. But to do that, he needed the king's permission. And so, he devises this kind of sick plan of ethnic cleansing. And he goes to the king and he tells the king, listen, there are a certain people, and he doesn't name the people, but he says there are a certain people in your kingdom and they're dangerous, which, which wasn't true. Or it wasn't exactly true. And all of them are disobedient, which again, isn't true. And then Haman makes this outrageous suggestion after he's talked to the king for a while. He says, listen, king, if you will agree to kill all the Jews in your kingdom, I will pay you lots of cash. I'll actually give you 340 tons of silver. And the king strangely doesn't ask any questions. He simply trusts Haman, and so he agrees to go along with his rather twisted plan. And he authorizes Haman to go and arrange for the annihilation of all the Jews. And Haman is delighted because that means, more than anything else, Mordecai is going to die. And so a date is set. And it's announced when all these killings are going to take place. Now, when Mordecai hears about this, he, he's somebody who's totally distraught. He can't believe what he is hearing. He cries, he tears his clothes, he dresses himself in sackcloth and ashes. And then Queen Esther hears about this. And obviously, she's incredibly upset. Mordecai is her adoptive dad. And so she sends some people to him to find out, what's wrong, Mordecai? And Mordecai sends a message back telling her about Haman's plan. And Mordecai also sends a message back pleading with Esther to go and try to get the king to change his mind. But there's a huge problem with that idea. In those days, you didn't just have a chat with the king whenever you wanted, even if you were the queen. You had to wait to be invited. And the last time it says that the queen was invited into the king's presence was 30 days ago. Must have been a great marriage that. And if anyone just walked into the king's private presence without an invite, they could have been put to death. And when Mordecai hears this, he's even more distressed. And so he sends word to Esther, listen Esther, you're gonna have to take a risk. I know it's 30 days since you've been in, your, in the king's prep, but you're going to have to take a risk and you're going to have to go and speak to the king as soon as possible. Otherwise, all the Jews, including me, including you, 
will die. And so Esther tells Mordecai, okay, Mordecai, I'll do it. But can you please ask the Jewish people to go on a three-day fast for me? And three days pass, and Esther gets ready to step well and truly outside of protocol, well and truly outside of her comfort zone. But when she enters the king's presence, he's, de he's delighted to see her. And he asks, what, what, do you, what do you want? And Esther invites him to a meal. But she also asks the king to bring Haman. You know, the guy that's got that top job in your government, can you bring him as well? And he does. And, and while they were eating and while they were drinking at this, this meal and having a great time, the king asked her again, whatever you want, even up to half the, the kingdom, Esther, you can have it. Just tell me what you want. And Esther says to him, tell you what, king, will, will you come back tomorrow for another meal? And can you bring Haman again? And then she will tell him what she wants. And the king agrees to this. And so Haman heads home to get a decent night's sleep. And on his way home, he walks through the palace gates. And again, everybody bows except Mordecai. And that annoys him. But he restrains himself because he knows that it's only a matter of time before all the Jews, including Mordecai, is going to die. But you that know the story know that he also goes home and right outside his house, he erects a 75 feet high set of gallows that he wants to personally hang Mordecai from. And so we'll go back to the palace. And the king can't sleep. And so he asks one of his servants to read to him. And the book that the servant chooses to read includes the story of how Mordecai saved the king's life. And when the king hears this story, he, he turns around to Sir and he says, well, what was done to thank that guy? How was he rewarded? And the answer comes back to the king, nothing was done. And so the king sends for Haman and he asks Haman a question. He says, what should I do to honor a man I want to honor? And Haman thinks he's referring to me. And so he says, well, listen, here's what I think you should do, king. I think you should put a royal robe on him. And you should set him on a royal horse, one that the king has ridden. And then you should parade him through the city shouting, this is what is done for the man who the king longs to honor. And the king loves this idea. And he says, okay, Haman, here's what I want you to do. And this is the bit. I want you to go and get Mordecai. And I want you to put a royal robe on him. And I want you to set him on a royal horse. And I want you to send him through the streets so that people can shout, this is what is done for the man who the king longs to honor. And you can only imagine how Haman feels. But before he has time to fully process what he's just heard, he's got to go for the second meal with Esther. And Esther, probably thinking that once the date rolls around, Mordecai is still going to be killed. So she has this meal. And during the meal, the king turns around and she says, listen, Esther, what is it you want? What is it you want? And so she takes a deep breath. And she reveals her identity. And she says, do you know, king, I'm a Jew. And she asks the king to spare her people. And finally, 
Esther tells him that she and her people have been sold by a man to be destroyed. And the king wants to know who has done such a thing. Who has done such a horrendous thing? And the queen looks at Haman and says, it's him. And the king is so angry that he gives orders for Haman to be killed and he actually insists that Haman is killed right outside his own house and is impaled on those 75 feet high gallows where he was planning to kill Mordecai. And the story finishes. And Mordecai is saved. And the edict to assassinate all the Jews is replaced by a new edict that ensures the Jews' safety and their security. And the king, it says, signs off on it by sealing the new edict with his ring. And as you read back over the story, you're left with a question. And the question is this. Where is God in all of that? Where was God? Because what is one of the big characteristics of the book of Esther? Who can tell me? God is never mentioned. Not once. No explicit reference to God in any of the 10 chapters. No words from God. God appears to be on mute throughout. There are no prayers in Esther. There are no quotes from any other scriptures in the book of Esther. And yet, despite the glaring and the apparent absence and silence of God, we all know, everybody knows, God was in control. His sovereignty screams loud and clear. God is silent throughout. And yet, paradoxically, He's speaking even through the silence. You see, reading Esther is a bit like watching a movie because there are plots and there are twists and there's suspense and there's setbacks and there's setups and there's crisis and there's dilemmas and there's heroes and there's villains and there's supporting actors and there's bit parts and there's extras. But every good film needs a good director the person who, who shapes every scene, who controls every character, who places each prop, who lines up each camera angle, and is deliberately and strategically working everything out right from the start to the finish. It is often the most important role, and yet in most films, the director, as far as we are concerned, remains silent and invisible as the film plays out before us. And in many ways, this is how it feels in Esther's story. And yet, as it all unfolds and as you read it, you discern that God is directing things. God is controlling things. And yes, there's no reference to God. And God doesn't seem to speak. And God seems to be silent. And you don't understand some of the twists and turns. But God is clearly in this. And as he weaves the plot elements together, not only are God's people rescued, but glory is brought to God. And even in the best known phrase from the book, we, we catch a glimpse of God working out his purposes. 
despite his silent witness. Can anyone tell me the most familiar phrase in the book of Esther? It's the one that most people quote, most people know. What is it? Sorry? Absolutely. And who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Throughout her life, Esther must have wondered what was going on. Where was God in, in Esther's life? In the loss of her parents, in exile, in a forced marriage, in a confined existence. Where she couldn't even go in to see her husband unless she was invited. But all of that eventually culminated in her powerfully and dramatically being used by God to rescue his people. Yet yeah, God speaks silently. It's a paradox, but it's a fact. Through the silence, he speaks via his sovereignty as the unseen director. But let me leave Esther's story for a moment. Although in many ways, it in itself to me just screams of the fact that there are times when we just do not hear God, detect his voice. We wonder, where is God? What is he doing? Why is there no explicit references to him? And yet, he, he's in control. And he is speaking, and he is working. But let me just mention three other issues regarding this paradox, because we're all familiar with the saying, suffering in silence. And I don't just mean suffering and, and being quiet about it. I actually mean suffering in silence, where there's just no answers coming. And there is no doubt that many people go through periods and experiences of suffering where it seems that, that God is silent and prayers do go unanswered. Prayers seem to hit the ceiling and God doesn't seem to be listening. That's how it feels to us. And in that book I mentioned earlier, I, I referred to the title of the book, God on Mute by Pete Gregg. He, he refers to Holy Week. He refers to Holy Week as the place where we can find solace and we can make some sense out of the misery of suffering and silence. And here's what he says, even Jesus experienced the silence of God. Even Jesus experienced unanswered prayers, but these became the occasion for the greatest miracles of all time. And he goes on to identify in his book three separate prayers, all apparently unanswered during Holy Week. So on Monday, Thursday, Jesus prayed for the unity of the church, that they may be one. You know that. But that week saw his friends and his disciples scattering and hiding while his enemies, Herod and Pilate, were more united than they ever were. And this pattern of the wicked being unified and the faithful suffering continues far too often these days. Jesus prayed that they might be one. Just on Monday, Thursday, and here, as Holy Week plays out, it seems that prayer's being unanswered. Later on Monday, Thursday, what else did Christ pray? Please, please take this cup of suffering from me. Yes, if it's your will, but please take this cup of suffering from me. But it wasn't. Yet through his death, the miracle of eternal life is offered to all. And then finally, on Good Friday, Jesus prayed to God, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know there was silence. There's no answer. And through Jesus' rejection on the cross, we have been accepted 
as sons and daughters into God's family. And it's fascinating how the Bible, even in Holy Week, even in one week, records and includes all kinds of verbalized expressions of suffering and angst from Jesus' anguished cries and prayers to the psalmist's expressions of doubt and despair, from the complaints of people like Habakkuk as we looked at, to the unanswered questions of so many key characters in Scripture. And yet, despite the apparent silence from heaven, we know that God hadn't left the building. God was still present. God was still speaking. God was still controlling. God was still at work. And although at times it was impossible, and it is impossible to hear his voice, it's even impossible to believe that God is speaking at this time. We've got to trust. We've got to trust. We've got to believe that he is. We've got to say that he's yet not my will. And then secondly, God also speaks, and you would expect me to say this, but God speaks to us silently every single day in creation. Psalm 19.1 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, creation is pouring Fourth speech. It's continually speaking on behalf of God. A beautiful sunset, tentative promise of the trees, budding branches, the rhythm of evening and morning. Those are words from the heart of God to you. They're silent words, but they're words God is speaking. God is speaking silently. What do you hear him saying to you. And then finally, in in everything that I've said or ever could say, the one thing that hopefully comes through, and this is key, is the importance of God's word, his living word, his active word. All scripture is what it's God breathed. God's written word constantly is speaking to us, silently at times, loudly at other times. And in the suffering, and in the wondering, and in the doubting, or in the apparent absence of God, his word keeps communicating. But the question always is, am I listening? Am I listening? I am I reading like Elijah, may not be in the big dramatic moments, but just in the sound of sheer silence. As we read and as we listen, God speaks silently. What is God quietly saying to you tonight?